this morning I'm going to be talking about what Jesus, when Jesus said, I am the vine. So another one of um, Jesus' I am statements in John. Um, so what I'm going to do first is just read this section. So we're looking at John 15, 1 in particular, but I'll read the whole passage that it's a part of. I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone who lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he give to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Okay. So before I look more at this, what is happening in the story when Jesus is saying these words, this statement? Uh, What's the context behind it all? Chapter 15 kind of takes place in the upper room. Um, So when the Last Supper is happening just before Gethsemane, um, chapters 13 to 17 in John are all in that place. Um, John tells us a bit more of what actually happened in, in the Last Supper, though he doesn't actually mention the Last Supper. Doesn't, doesn't have the actual ritual of this, this is my body, this is my blood that the other, that the other um, Gospels mentioned. But he tells us more of what Jesus spoke to the disciples in the upper room that evening. And so you, this is private teaching. This is just Jesus and his disciples in this room. And in the outline of the events is probably the actual Last Supper ceremony that we, we talk about has already happened. So Jesus has already said, this is my body and this is my blood, um, which is interesting connecting because he's saying the wine is my blood and now he starts talking about a vine. Um, So there's a connection there that we'll come back to in a minute. Um, So that's when this is happening, okay? So in this statement, when Jesus says, I am the vine, he's obviously talking about himself, but when he says, you are the branches, he's talking to the disciples. So that's important to get that the you here are the disciples. It's not the disciples and the crowd and the extras or anyone listening. 
It's just a private conversation between Jesus and the disciples. I would say the 12, but I think Judas has already left at this point in the story. Um, But originally it would have been the 12 he was talking to. So that's where, where it's taking place. So what is this statement, I am the vine? Why does Jesus talk about, I am the true vine? Well, Jesus has already used this image a few times during his ministry. If you remember, there's the parable of the wicked tenants, where he talks about a vineyard that that a master has placed these people in charge of, and they kill the master's servants, and they eventually kill the master's son. And the vineyard he's speaking about is Israel. And the evil tenants are the Pharisees and the Sadducees that are supposed to be looking after Israel. And everybody understands this because as soon as he says it, the Pharisees and the Sadducees want to kill him. So they know exactly what that parable means and who's who in the story. So he's used this image before, this idea of a vine or a vineyard. But he's used it as Israel. And this is how the prophets use it in the Old Testament. You have this recurring theme that Israel is often represented as a vine. That's kind of the symbol for the nation. Um, Sometimes I think we associate the olive tree or the fig tree, but mostly in the Old Testament, it's actually the vine that is talked about, or a vineyard as Israel. Um, Some examples here that we're going to look at. Isaiah 5, 1 to 7, Jeremiah 2, 21, and Ezekiel 9, 10 to 14. All of these are talking about a vine or a vineyard, and that's Israel that's being talked about. Um, God's vine or God's vineyard. So before I look at what Jesus is saying, how Jesus is using this image, I first want to look at how the Old Testament uses this image, because that's what the disciples would know about. When Jesus talks about a vine or a vineyard, they already have an image in their head. That they've been grown up reading and been taught about in the synagogues. They know the prophets. They know Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and others. So they know this image. So what image is in their head when somebody mentions the vine or the vineyard to them? In Isaiah, you have a song. You have many songs in Isaiah. But one song in particular is called the Vineyard Song. Um, it's Isaiah 5, 1 to 7. And it's a song talking about the situation in Israel, or in Judah in particular, uh, whilst Isaiah is giving his message. And it's a, it's a song about a vineyard. And Yahweh is the vine dresser. He is the one who created this incredible vineyard. Um, on a fertile hill, he, re- he builds walls around it to protect it. Um, and, he, and he plants, it says, choice vine. So it's a really, really good plants. He plants in this vineyard. So he makes this perfect vineyard on this fertile hill. And as you would expect, he was hoping that this perfect vineyard would then produce perfect grapes. So that you can make perfect wine from the grapes. But instead of making kind of cultured grapes that you could make wine from, the song says it produced wild grapes. As the idea that it produced grapes that you can't actually use for eating or for making wine. 
And if you can't use them for eating or making wine, they're basically useless. You're not going to be able to use them. And in this, in this song, Yahweh says that I've done everything I can for this vineyard. I've looked after it. I've treated it. I've given it water. I've protected it. Yet still it's producing these wild grapes and not the fruit I'm looking for. And so he removes its protection. He gets rid of the walls. He gets rid of what protects it. He, he, gra- he lets animals graze over the land. He tramp all the, the vineyard, the vines are trampled down. Um, instead of this wonderful fertile vineyard, it becomes a waste. And thorns and thistles and grow there and not, not vine. And all, also, he says, he commands the clouds that it doesn't actually rain on it anymore. So he gets rid of it and actually says, no more rain. So it's just a place, a desolate wasteland where just thorns are growing. And then the song clearly says, the vine is Israel or Judah. Um, Yahweh planted Judah, planted Israel, and he protected it, cared for it, cultured it, watered it, and so therefore expected a type of fruit from it. But instead... It has produced wild grapes, useless fruit. He expected righteousness to come as a fruit, but instead, wickedness has come. Jeremiah is a bit simpler, because it's only one verse. Um, But there is a verse um, before it, which actually is saying the same thing, but using different words, as um, Hebrew poets often do. In verse 20... It talks, um, talking about Israel as a whole, that I broke your yoke and your bonds. Like, I freed you from slavery, going back to the Exodus story in Egypt. In the beginning of our story, I freed you from slavery. I gave you freedom. I gave you everything. Yet, you refused me. And instead, you go after other gods on the hills around you. You worship other gods. In fact, the language actually is quite graphic in what they're doing on the hills with other, other gods, but I'll skip over that right now. Um, and then 21 is a kind of a parallel story, but again using this vineyard, this vine image. And so it says, I planted you like a choice vine of pure seed, yet you have turned degenerate and become a wild vine. So this same image, it was a choice vine, pure seed, you expect, therefore, for it to have produced good fruit, but instead it produced wild, useless fruit. The last one is from Jeremiah nineteen ten to four, and this is a part. This is a part of a big, bigger lamentation, and it's a lamentation for the rulers of Judah, the kings and the princes of Judah, that Jeremiah is singing over them. Now, it talks about that they have a mother. And so if the mother of the princes of Judah would be Judah itself. So Israel, Judah. And your mother was like a vineyard, a vineyard, that was planted by water. So it always had water to, to nurture it and to get, you'd expect again to get good fruit from. And it was fruitful. And it had many, many branches that grew because of the water. So it's this wonderful vineyard that was fruitful and had many branches. It said that its strong stems became scepters, rulers' scepters. 
So this image of strength and power and leadership. And it towered aloft. It was a... I've seen vineyards, and they don't exactly tower, do they? Compared to other trees. But this one did. (laughs) This vineyard towered aloft and had many, many, many branches. It was a very, very impressive, fruitful vineyard. But that same vineyard was plucked up and cast down. Um, The east wind dried up all of its fruit. Fire consumed its strong stems. And it was then replanted, but replanted in the wilderness, in a dry and thirsty land, no water. And fire came along and consumed its fruit. And because of that, there was no longer any strong stems. There was no longer any scepters, any leadership. So if you take these ideas together, the Old Testament prophets talk often about Israel as a vineyard or a vine that was planted by Yahweh out from choice vines, from pure seed, um, this perfect vineyard. It was meant to be, and it was for a while, a fruitful vineyard, a fruitful vine with many, many branches. But the fruit became wild. The righteousness turned to wickedness. Instead of producing the fruit that it was meant to, useful fruit, It produced useless fruit, these wild grapes. And so the vine was destroyed. It was plucked up, it was burnt, it was replanted in a dry wilderness. And there were no great rulers, there was no fruit, there was no life. So a vineyard has a purpose, has a role. It's supposed to produce good grapes, so that you can either eat the grapes or, mostly, turn those grapes into wine. That was its role, that was its purpose. Israel, too, Israel the vineyard, had a purpose. It had a role. It had good fruit that it was supposed to produce. The question is, what was that fruit? What fruit were they meant to bear? Again, we're trying to think what the disciples are thinking of when Jesus is saying this to them. So what would they think if Israel's a vineyard? What are they thinking? What do they know? What fruit was Israel meant to bear? What role were they meant to have? Well, you can see all through the Old Testament and the New Testament, Israel is talked about as the priestly nation. Israel's role on earth was to know God, be blessed, be fruitful, have this be a wonderful place so that the other nations of the world will look upon them and know God too. That was their role. Just like a priest's role is to be between God and the people, Israel's role was to be between God and the nations. That was their purpose. In fact, if you go all the way back to the beginning, to Abraham's covenant, it talks about this. That in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You are blessed to be a blessing to others. And Abraham's name is changed to Abram, which means exalted father, changed to Abraham, which basically means father of many nations or father of a multitude. So right from the beginning, the whole idea, this wasn't just about Israel. 
The good fruit that Israel was meant to bear was to bring all the nations into the family. That was their branches. That was their fruit. That was the grapes they were meant to produce. That's what they were meant to be. But if you read Kings and if you read the prophets, you read a different story. Um, For me, one of the most powerful examples of this is in Ezekiel 36. Um, God is saying to Israel in exile that instead of being this priestly nation that welcomed all the nations in, he says, instead, you have blasphemed my name amongst the nations. You have made me look bad by disobeying me and 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 forcing me to judge you. You have made me look like someone who cannot protect his own children. And so therefore, why would any nation want to worship me if they look at you? And you have blasphemed my name. And he then tells them, I'm going to bring you home from exile to show the nations how great I am. But it's got nothing to do with how good you are. (laughs) It's to do with me. (laughs) It's to protect my name that you have blasphemed. I am going to save you from exile. So that was the reality. That was, if you like, the wild, useless fruit that Israel produced. So what is Jesus saying to the disciples by using these images? By saying to his disciples, I am the true vine, he's saying to them, I am the true Israel. Because that's who Israel is in their mind, the vine, the vineyard. He says, I am the vine. I am true Israel. And if I am the vine, and my father has made this vineyard, the vine dresser, then my, my father is Yahweh. My father is that same person who created this vineyard in the first place. It's similar to what I, another place in Isaiah, he's fulfilling what Isaiah said. In an, another couple of songs in Isaiah, you have the servant songs near the end. And there are three servants talked about. One is Cyrus, and you don't need to worry about him. The other two are Israel, is the servant that failed Yahweh. But then you have this other figure, which is just called the servant. It doesn't have any name, just the servant. And it's this servant that would save Israel, and bring Israel back to God, and make Israel what they're meant to be again. Jesus is the true servant, is the servant. Jesus is the true Israel. If you like, he saves Israel by becoming Israel. He fulfills Israel's destiny by becoming Israel himself. Um, he would be the one that bears this fruit. He would be the one that would fulfill Israel's priestly role and bring all the nations in. He would fulfill Israel's destiny. So Israel had failed in its mission, but it hadn't failed in its mission. Because actually its mission was Jesus. Its mission was, in the end, to produce Jesus And Jesus fulfills Israel's destiny and makes Israel a success. 
Israel did what it was meant to be because Jesus came. So, if Jesus is saying he is the vine, then who are the branches? Yes, we know they're the disciples. Um, But what would that image be in their head if he is saying, I am true Israel and you are my branches? What is he saying? Well, if you look in John's gospel and the rest of the gospels, you have interesting parallels between the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the life of Israel. Um, Just one example off the top of my head is like Israel spends 40 years in in the wilderness. Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness. And you have these lots of parallels. Another one, Israel comes up out of Egypt. Um, Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus go to Egypt, so therefore Israel, Jesus comes out of Egypt too. So there's all these little parallels between the life of Jesus and the life of Israel. And also when it comes to the disciples and the things that Jesus is doing. So in 670, Jesus calls 12 disciples. Why does he choose 12 disciples? It's not because there were 12 of them were good and the rest of them didn't, didn't, weren't, didn't make the cuts. They only made 12. He chooses 12 for a reason. Because there are 12 tribes of Israel. So the 12 disciples are paralleling the 12 tribes of Israel. In chapter 4, he, he begins to talk about a new temple. Now, the prophets have been talking about a new temple for a long time. But he was saying that this new temple is going to be a little bit different than the old. And so, of course, in the original story, you had 12 tribes and then a tabernacle. So there's that parallel. He also talks about himself being the bread of life. And in the wilderness, in the tabernacle, you had bread within the tabernacle, which represented the manna which was the bread of life that God offered to Israel. Also, on the Feast of Tabernacles, again, he wasn't doing this by accident, it was for a reason. So whilst they were all hanging out in tents, remembering the time that their ancestors were living in tents in the wilderness, he says to them, I am the living water, come and drink an echo of how God provided water miraculously for them in the, in the desert. Um, but this water doesn't run out like it does in the desert. So what Jesus is saying, the Gospels are saying, is that these disciples, these branches, this is the new Israel. And again, this is nothing new. New Israel is nothing new. That doesn't make any sense. But um, what I mean is that the prophets have long been talking about new Israel. That there's going to be at some stage in Israel's life a difference. There's going to be a new temple, a new Israel, a new Jerusalem. Things are going to change. The Messiah is going to change things. Um, Israel's destiny will change somehow. They will look different after the Messiah. There will be a new Israel. Many people actually think that it shouldn't really be a new Israel. More the word should be it will be a renewed Israel. 
or Israel meant Israel brought back to what it was supposed to be again. And this is what many of the prophets talk about, Ezekiel especially. Ezekiel begins his book by talking about the old Israel and the old temple and how bad it was, and ends his book by talking about a new Israel and a new temple and how great it is. Um, So the destiny of Israel is to become renewed, is to become great again, is to become new. And Jesus is saying to his 12 new tribes, the 12 disciples, you are the beginning of this. You are the beginning of the renewal of, of Israel. You are the beginning of the change from going from the wild and useless fruits to the good fruit. You are the start. And if you think about what's just happened This conversation has come about because he has just shared with them the bread and the wine that we celebrate in communion. Before saying, I am the vine, he said, I am the wine. Or, my blood is the wine. So, my blood is the wine because I am the vine. That makes sense. Because where do you get wine from? You get wine by crushing vines. Kind of a graphic image, if you think about it. Jesus, the vine, was crushed and therefore produced wine, the blood. And he said, again echoing Jeremiah, this is the new covenant. A new covenant I give you, which is not like the old covenant. This is what Jeremiah said. It's going to be a different type of covenant with Israel. It's going to be internal. And you will all know me. So if you like, the true Israel offers a new covenant to the new Israel. And it's this covenant that binds this new Israel, this new temple, the many analogies that are used, the church, the new Israel, whatever you want to call it. It's the new covenant that binds these two together. The true vine, the true Israel and the new Israel. They become his branches. In other words, in other other places it said they become his body. They become a part of him. They come out of him. So the life of this new Israel is going to be found in Jesus, the true vine, the true Israel. Its success or its failure... It's good fruit or it's bad fruit depends now on its, on its relationship with Jesus. You know, in a similar way, in the Old Testament, the good and the bad fruit depended on Israel's relationship with Yahweh. Now, it's depending on the relationship with Jesus. Jesus has been painting these familiar pictures and images to them that they know from the Old Testament about the vine, the vineyard, the good fruit, and the bad fruit. They know what happened. They know their history. They know their stories. They know the bad, wild fruit that was produced by old Israel. They know what happened to Judah because they did not follow God's ways and did not produce good fruit. Because they pushed the nations away. 
So they know this image that Jesus is painting for them. When he talks of um, branches being burnt, thrown away, withered. When he talks about bearing good fruit, not bearing good fruit. They know, if you like, the seriousness of what it means to be a branch of the vine. The question is, how is this renewed, the new Israel, how is it going to be different from the old? How are they going to bring the nations in? How are they going to be a priestly nation that will bring all the families in? How are they going to produce good fruit? If we look again at the actual passage that Jesus goes on to talk about, there are, some, there are lots of repeated words. You may have noticed as I read it. Two phrases in particular repeated time and time again. Well, they are told to bear fruit. Three phrases are repeated time and time again. They're told to bear fruit. And if they, if they produce bad fruit, they will be cast off. But if they produce good fruit, the reward for producing good fruit is the getting pruned. Doesn't sound particularly nice. <laughs> but the reward for producing good fruit is to be pruned so that you produce more good fruit. They are told that they have to abide in him, abide in Jesus. And his words must abide in them. And if that happens, then they will produce fruit. They must abide in his love and keep his commandments. They must abide in his love and love one another just as he loved them. They are now his friends. They are no longer his servants. They are now his friends. They are chosen to bear fruit. That's their purpose. That's their role. And they are commanded to love one another. So basically, it's abide and love. That's this repeated idea. Abiding, loving, bearing fruit. How are the disciples going to bear fruit? Well, the number one thing is to abide in Jesus. Abide in Jesus' love. Staying connected to the vine, being one with the vine, never losing that relationship. Everything coming from Jesus. That's the first thing. The second thing is loving one another. You could argue just as important as the first. Like, how will you know that you are, how will the world know that you are my disciples? By the way, you love one another. So you could almost say, how will the world know that you are abiding in me? By the way that you love one another. They are connected. Abiding in him, loving one another. You cannot separate them. And if they abide in him and love one another, then they will produce fruit. Then they will bear fruit. And the fruit is bringing more people into that abiding relationship with Jesus and more people into the love that they have for one another. That is how this new Israel, beginning with the, with the 12 disciples, 
That is how they are going to bring the nations into the family. That's how they are going to be Israel and fulfill Israel's destiny to bring all peoples in, regardless of nationality. So the question is, how did they do? How did they get along with this task? Well, just looking at the New Testament, they did quite well. Um, in Acts, the story begins that these, this small group of people, suddenly a few thousand are added to them, Jews from Jerusalem and from all over the Roman world, both Hebrew-speaking and Greek-speaking. So, well, that's not really going to the nations so much because they're all Jews, but it is at least Jews that are spread all over the world and have two very different worldviews and two different languages. So there's a bit of a, bit of a growth there, and there's a few thousands, that's obviously more people. But then, of course, as the story goes on, Samaritans are added. Samaritans being this half kind of nation. <laughs> they are descended from the Israelite, the northern tribes of Israel, but they are also descended from Gentiles. They are a mix, they're a blend. And yet we see in Acts that they are welcomed into the family. And then the story goes even beyond there with Cornelius and then and his family, Gentiles, being welcomed into the family. Then you actually get a church which is predominantly Gentile in Syria. And then you get Paul's missionary journeys. And suddenly people are added to the family in Galatia, in Macedonia, in Greece, in Asia, in Rome. So you see these small group of people started fulfilling Israel's destiny. They started bringing in other nations into the family, into the family of Abraham. Israel started to grow. And Israel was no longer just Jews, the descendants of Judah, the descendants of, of Abraham, Israel was now all peoples, all nations, all families that were welcomed in, just as God promised Abraham all those centuries before. And that's just Acts. That's basically just talking about a few things that Peter did, some more things that Paul did, and a couple of little stories about their friends. Um, Someone has said Acts of Apostles is an utterly ridiculous name. It should be the acts of two apostles and some of their friends. Um, because it doesn't tell hardly any of the story. You know, Luke had a very focused goal of what he was trying to achieve of that book. And his achie- he wasn't intending to give us a history of the early church. Um, because he misses out quite a lot. But he has a very focused intention. Um, but if we read church history, then we can find out stories of what those other, the rest of the twelve did the other apostles, the other disciples, the other people that were then drawn in in the first few generations of the church, how they spread the gospel all over the Roman world and beyond, like even to India, in that first generation. Um, Us Welsh have legends as well about how the gospel came to Wales in, in the reign of Cornelius very early on. No idea how true they are, but we like them anyway. Like the idea that we've always been Christian. Well, well, since the beginning, anyway. Yes, there you go. Um, (laughs) So we can see from these other stories outside of the Bible how successful these 12 were, 
how much fruit they did bring in, how many more branches that were added in because they abided in Jesus' love and because they loved one another. And here we have today. Um, This is a map showing Christians around the world. And the darker the country, um, it's the more percentage of Christians within it. And the lighter the country, the less (laughs) percentage you have in there. Obviously, um, this is from censuses, (laughs) people saying, are you a Christian? So there's always questions about, do people just write down, I am a Christian because their families are Christians or or they think they should write that down? I know there's lots of questions about that, but even so, that's quite impressive. If you think, um, 2.2 billion Christians around the world. That's quite a lot. Um, It's funny that China is so light, but there's probably more Christians in there than any other nation. (laughs) But there's so many people in China that it's very light on a scale. (laughs) And look, look, Greenland is practically black, but how many people live there? (laughs) So (laughs) that's the question. But, But even that, that is the fruit. That is the fruit of the vine and the branches. That is what has been achieved in 2,000 years. And of course, one snapshot in history doesn't tell you the story of all the centuries before. But that gives you an idea of what happened because of this conversation. That when Jesus says, you are my branches, you 12, your job is to bear fruit is to get out there and get more branches that will bear more fruit, that will get more branches, that will get more fruit, until the nations come into my family. And the more I'm... What's the more I'm what? The more I'm studying, the more I'm doing what I'm doing, the more I'm realizing that we often don't pay attention to our own story. And there's one thing um, I would encourage everybody to do is to read church history. Um, Often, our particular branch of Christianity, um, because we don't like the tradition word, (laughs) we tend to, unfortunately, we tend to actually throw the baby out with the bathwater in our views of this, because it often means we don't read the traditions. And we don't read the history of the church. And the history of the church is our story. It's our history. It shows us how we got where we are today. And it shows us how people throughout the centuries have abided in Jesus. And have loved one another. It also shows us times in our history when we have not abided in Jesus and we have not loved one another. But it does show our story. And it shows how incredible how the world has changed through this conversation. Through Jesus saying to these 12 men, well, 11 men probably at that point in 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 the story, you are my branches. Abide in me, love one another, and you will bear fruit.
So, this is where we are today. We are branches. Um, we were added on by somebody who, who by abiding in Jesus' love and then loving us and loving those around them, welcomed us into the family. You can all probably remember who it was that welcomed you into the family. So we are now a part of this story. We are now branches. So the question is, how do we live as branches? How do we carry on this story? I think the first thing we need to remember that all life comes from the vine. All that we do has its source in Jesus, comes from Jesus. He's not just our king. He's the source of all that we have, our life itself. All our fruit depends on him. We cannot succeed without him. No matter how good we get at what we do, we cannot succeed without him. And this is something, me in particular, I've struggled with over the years. I've been doing this Bible teaching thing for a while now. And people have told me that I've got quite good at it, which is dangerous. Because if people start telling you you're quite good at it, you start believing them. And if you start believing that people, that you are quite good at it, you start to think, yeah, I'm quite good at this, I can do this. And so those fervent prayers and hours on your knees that you did in the beginning of your ministry, oh God, please help me. <laughs> I need to go up there and talk about your word. Like, I still remember... The second book I ever taught at the Lodge was Numbers. Um, thank you, Hermoyne. Um, I went from teaching Philippians to Numbers. And I, 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 was pe- I was petrified. He goes, this is a part of the Torah. How can I get up there and then teach part of the Torah? I, there was a lot of prayer involved. You know, and the next year... Um, my, my boss, Hermoyd at the time, she says, okay, you can teach Romans now. And I was even more petrified. <laughs> How can I get up there and teach Romans? And there was lots and lots of study and lots and lots of dependence on God and lots and lots of prayer. And fast forward 16 years, when I'm asked to teach a book now, I have to be honest, there isn't as much prayer involved as there was at the beginning. And I have to ask myself every time, is that right? Just because I know that I can get up and do it, does that actually mean that I shouldn't actually spend hours on my knees too? Remembering that actually the reason I can do it is because of him. Um, The reason I'm doing this is him. And yeah, I may be good, but... If I don't get that from him, if I don't remember it's all from him, then I'm not producing good fruit. Um, and I have little rituals that I do to kind of help me remember that in my process of study. Um, but I have to admit, I often forget. And I think, I mean, that's probably true of many people who have been in the ministry a long time or been Christians a long time. 
you get used to what you're doing. You kind of know what you're doing. And I think I need to tell myself every time I do this that I need to rely more on him. I need to remember that even if I can do this, it doesn't matter. Because the life comes from him. And even if I can do it, he's the reason I can do it anyway, not me. Anyway, a bit of a tangent there. I should come back on point now. <laughs> our task depends on our relationship. I think this is a... Is this, okay. I think this is an important point here. That all that we do as the church, as this church, as the church in Nuneaton, as the church in the UK, and, and the whole church, all of it depends on our relationship. And that's not just our relationship with Jesus. All that we do also depends on our relationship, our love for one another. Abiding in him, yes, but also loving one another. It's just as important. And our fruit, obviously, is to bring more people into that family. To make more branches that will make more fruit and make more branches. We are part of a vine that if you look at that, if you remember that map, has many, many branches all over the world. We are part of a worldwide family, the children of Abraham. And the reason we are is because many, many people have abided in Jesus' love and have loved one another. So the challenge for us is to do the same and to continue loving him and abiding in his love, but just as importantly, loving one another. We pray. Yes, Lord, I thank you that you are our vine, that you are the source that all that we have, our life, our strength, our purpose, our joy, all that we have is in you. Help us, Lord, every day to remember what we have in you and who we are in you. And that you, your cent- you are the center of our lives. You are the source of all that we have. In our busy lives, in our ministry, in our jobs, in our family lives, help us to remember that all of that comes from you. Um, and forgive us, Lord, when we get distracted. But help but bring us back, I pray, into that abiding sense of your love. And help us also to remember that it's not just about you, it's about everyone else around us. That we may continue to love one another as you have commanded us. um, So that we will bear fruit and bring more people into our love, but more importantly, bring more people into the abidance of your love. In your name we pray. Amen.